The title of the message this morning is The Word of Life. Um, We're going to begin this series going through this book verse by verse. But before I get into the actual verses, we're going to cover uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. I want to just share a little bit of background information about the book as a whole. The author of the book, as it's called, is John. He never identifies himself by name, uh, which is common amongst the Apostle John. It's not common amongst the other books. Paul usually identified himself as the writer of his books, as Peter did as well. But John here doesn't identify himself by name. But most commentators are unanimous in believing that this is the Apostle John who penned this letter. Um, the, 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 the one who penned the Gospel of John as well, as, who was also known as a, the son of Zebedee, called the son of thunder, and called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, and also the apostle and disciple who wrote the book of Revelation while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. The dating of this book is widely believed uh, that John wrote this at the end of the first century. Uh, John, among, uh, along with several other of the disciples, lived in and amongst Jerusalem um, all the way up till almost 70 A.D. If we know our history, we know that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman uh, troops in 70 A.D., and many of, of God's people then began to scatter out throughout the Mediterranean world. And John himself was one of these, and it is widely believed that he then moved himself uh, to the city of Ephesus. And that's where he pretty much spent the rest of his life ministering uh, in the city of Ephesus, except for the brief time that he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos where he received the revelation to the seven churches. Um, The dating of the book is is widely believed to be in the very late uh, first century. It's believed that the Gospel of John was written around 85 to 90 A.D., and then it's believed that John wrote these letters some five to ten years later. John is at this time the last surviving apostle, uh, and he is well advanced in years, but he has not lost any of his zeal for Christ or any of his zeal for the church. One of the things that John is beginning to see the effects of is that the effects that false teachers are beginning to have on the church. Paul warned uh, um, the church many, many years earlier in Acts chapter 20. He said, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Peter also warned them in in 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So false teaching was beginning to infiltrate the church at this time. One of these false religions, you've heard us mention it several other places, in the Bible was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was uh, one of the things that plagued the early church. Gnostics believed that matter is evil and the spirit is good. The Gnostics portrayed themselves as the knowing one, which is where the Greek word gnosis means, while at the same time they insisted that salvation was by knowledge. Now, a particular group of Gnostics um, who 
who were involved in, in, in works in and amongst um, Ephesus were called the Docetists. Uh, they taught that sin and atonement have really no place, no place in, in the teaching of the gospel. Christ came into the world not to redeem it by the remission of sins, but to illuminate a few choice intellects with philosophy. In other words, they taught that Jesus is not God manifest in the flesh. They taught that Jesus Christ, Jesus and the Christ are distinct. Jesus' humanity was not real but a phantasm. In other words, they believed that the Christ spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his crucifixion. And that was the only time uh, that, that Jesus, the Christ man, the God man, was, was actually uh, present. Uh, so one of the main themes of this book, this book of 1 John, is the confrontation of heresy, false teaching. The believers who, who were being exposed to this false teaching were being shaken up. Many of their friends and even people who were professing believers in Christ were abandoning the faith. They were confused. Were, were these new teachings true? Was this the truth? What does it mean to be a Christian? And so we see several chapters over towards the end of the book, if you want to flip over there, uh, at chapter 5, verse 13, we see one of the main theme, key verses of the entire book where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that's one of the main purpose statements, one of the main themes of this book that John is writing is to assure believers, uh, professing believers and believers what it looks like, what it means to be a Christian and what it doesn't mean. Now, earlier in John's Gospel, towards the end of John's Gospel, when he wrote uh, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he wrote, this is the reason he wrote his Gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, we may have, you may have life in his name. And so you see the difference here. John, in writing his Gospel, is writing an evangelistic proclamation of of who Jesus Christ was, so that people would believe in Him and have eternal life. But now, many, many years later, John is writing this epistle with the purpose of writing to already professing believers in Christ, those who have already believed that Jesus is the Christ. But they're confused. They don't know if they really and truly are, if they're really believing the correct doctrines, if they really are Christians. And so John is writing this to assure them that they have eternal life. The Barna Research Group in a poll taken in 2006 showed that 83% of Americans identified themselves as Christians, but only 8% of the adult population were considered evangelical. Now, you have to know the definitions that Barna uses in his polling. An evangelical is defined as people who say that they have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important to their life today. People who believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and had accepted Jesus as their Savior. People who say their faith is very important in their life. People who believe they have a personal responsibility to share their religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians. People who believe that Satan is a, is, literally exists is a, is a spirit being. People who believe that eternal salvation is possible only through grace and not by works. And people who believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. They assert that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. And they describe God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. So in other words, to be characterized and defined as an evangelical in this poll, these are the things that you have to believe. 
and only 8% of Americans would assent that they believed that. And so the, other, the 83% who, who were classified as Christians could literally believe that Jesus was not the Son of God. They could believe, not believe any of these things, just a couple of things, and still be classified of, uh, as a Christian. Um, so even in our day, we see that there is much confusion in America about what a true Christian is. And so a second major theme of John's, gospel, of John's epistle here is to help his readers to come to a settled assurance that they were indeed a child of God. In doing this, John will set forth three tests, and we're going to see these develop in coming sermons as we begin to go through this book. This book is not exactly like um, uh, uh, the epistles that Paul wrote where he, he deals from one thing and then goes to another and then goes to another. We see John's letter here and the style of his writing is more circular. He will deal with one issue and then he'll go to another issue, but then he'll come back to it again in a different form much later. But there, we will see three distinct tests that John is setting forth to help the readers, to help us determine if, and to assure our hearts that we really do know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The first is a doctrinal test. What do you believe? What do you believe about Christ? Who is Christ? And so John will, uh, will help us to, to answer that question. The second is a moral test. Is the pattern of your life obedience to God's commands? How did, how did, what is the manner of your life? What do you find yourself doing from day to day? Do you find yourself obeying God's commands? And then finally, a relational test. Do you love others? Is your life, the pattern of your life, love for other people? Love for the world in general, but most specifically love for Christians, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that characterize your life? And so that's kind of the background of the whole book. And so now we're going to get into the first four verses of chapter 1. I want to read these. Follow along with me, if you will. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The outline that I've chosen this morning kind of breaks down according to the verse divisions. Verse 1, we're going to look at the message is true. Verse 2, we will look at the person of Christ is real. Verse 3, the fellowship is genuine. And then verse 4, the personal joy is unquestionable. So let's start with verse 1. The message is true. Notice John says, that which was from the beginning. This sounds very similar to the opening verse of John's gospel, does it not? Where John says, in the beginning was the word. In the, in the gospel, John is telling us that Jesus Christ has existed from all eternity. The Greek construction here in, in this epistle is a little bit different than what we see there. In John's gospel, what he's doing, he's saying, in the beginning was the Word. He's saying, at the beginning of creation and looking back into eternity past, Jesus Christ has always existed. He is the eternal Son of the Father. Even though Jesus the man w was born of the Virgin Mary at a certain time in, 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 in time, 
in, in eternity past, the Christ, the God-man, has always existed. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. But here, his, the construction is a little bit different. He's saying, from the beginning. From the beginning. That which was from the beginning. And so what he's saying here is that we're looking back from the point of creation and then lo- looking forward and speaking about the message of Christ Himself. That which was from the beginning. And in particular, I believe it's talking about from the beginning of when the apostles began to experience this message of Christ, when Jesus came on the scene in His ministry. And for those three years that He's, that he's going through teaching His disciples and teaching and proclaiming the gospel, and then even further after the day of Pentecost when the church was born and the apostles uh, began to proclaim the message throughout the world. This is what this is talking about. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Notice the word we there. Uh, John is identifying himself as one of the apostles. Uh, We represents the apostles who were appointed as witnesses of Christ and the gospel. They have heard, speaks of the message that John and the rest of the apostles heard from the messenger himself. Jesus spent many a day teaching his disciples. Uh, Many many had to be a frustrating day whenever they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Uh, They were confused, but yet he spent his, 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 his time working with these 12 men pouring his life into them. And John is saying, we heard this. Um, Jesus is both the messenger and the message. The message that he spoke was the message about himself. He was the one who came, uh, who was, the, who was the, the, the part of the gospel that they needed to know. Heard is not simply a past action in the Greek. It's actually speaking of something that's happened in the past, but it's having an impact well into the future. John is still being impacted by what he heard probably some 60 years earlier. It's still fresh in John's mind. He goes on to say, that which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes. We're seeing a progression here of the senses here. We heard it with our ears. Now we've seen it with our eyes. They were eyewitnesses of of the miracles of Christ, of everything that happened as Christ went through. They were actually eyewitnesses uh, of the crucifixion. John stood below the cross looking up at his his Savior being, uh, being murdered. And so John said, we have seen it with our eyes. And next he says, we looked upon. This sort of sounds similar to what, what he just said. They've seen, but this is a little bit more intense uh, of, a, of a verb. Not only had they seen the events of the Gospels, the apostles had carefully and deliberately examined the life of Christ, the life, person, and events of Christ. John lived with and learned from Jesus for three years. He looked very intently at, at everything that he taught and especially intently at the, at the purpose of why Jesus was there when he was, when he was hanging on that cross. He looked intently at that. Again, talking about having implications coming forward from the past. And then finally he says, we have touched with our hands. And so we've heard it with our ears, we've seen it with our eyes, we've looked very intently at it to grasp the meaning of it, and we actually touched him with our hands. Can you imagine that? I mean, we, 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 we know Jesus, we're blessed because we know Jesus, but can you imagine the, the, the blessing of actually having walked with him and held his hand and touched him? And as John, John was the one at the Last Supper who leaned against Jesus' breast. Can you imagine the blessing of that? Can you imagine the impact that that's had on this man for his whole life? And so, uh, he, and, and especially, I think, in, in this term, in this phrase, he's talking about they have touched him subsequent to or after the crucifixion. They actually, uh, as Thomas the Apostle, actually put his hands into his wounds in the side. He actually was able to touch him and, and see the risen Christ. And so we see John is, is laying out these various terms to prove that they were eyewitnesses that this Jesus was God in the flesh. 
And so he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, uh, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, concerning the message of the life is what is the literal Greek. Uh, in John's gospel, he refers to Jesus as the word. But here he's referring to him as the life. He's a different designation for Jesus. And Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 6, verse 48. He said, I am the bread of life. John chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so Jesus was the very epitome of life. And so John here is verifying the truth of the message by saying, yes, it's true. Don't worry about these false teachers who are telling you about, no, Jesus was not actually uh, here in the flesh. Uh, yes, it's true. Jesus Christ and the facts of the gospel are fact, and they are reality. If you notice, probably in some of your Bibles, or in all of your Bibles, there's a parenthesis before verse 2, or there might be a dash marks. And so what this is signifying that verse 2, as we get into that, is actually a parenthetical remark that John is making. It's as if he's on a train of thought in verse 1, and then he has to pause and explain something about verse 1 and amplify it a little bit more before he returns back to his original train of thought. And so... In verse 1, he's relaying that the message of Christ is true. The message of the gospel is true. But at the end of it, the very last thing he says in verse 1, he says, that which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And now he goes to explain what is this word of life. Verse 2, and here we will see that the person of Christ is real. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and made manifest to us. So he's saying the life was made manifest. Here again, we point back to the beginning verses of John's Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And so he's saying here, the life was made manifest. I'm pointing back to, a, to what happened. Jesus actually came in the flesh. It was manifest. The eternal second person of the Trinity is the life that became flesh and dwelt among us. That's an important point of the gospel. B.B. Warfield, in his selected shorter writing, says this of the Incarnation. The glory of the Incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, yet without sin one on whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. So you see the uniqueness of Christ. He's God in the flesh, but he's also man. He's 100% man, 100% God. And so John is reiterating the fact that the life was made manifest. Uh, The life of Christ was here on earth. And we have seen it. Here again, John is going to, to be reiterating some of the things he's already said. We've seen it. He's emphasizing their eyewitness Uh, eyewitnesses of his life and how did the apostles bear witness i mean there were there were witnesses they're claiming to be witness how did they go about bearing witness and he says in three ways here uh two ways here in this verse and then another one in, in the fourth verse and then on the first one he says that we testify we have seen it and testify to it the greek word that is translated testify is a word that was used in a court of law And it denotes the bearing of testimony to that which has been seen. In other words, an eyewitness testimony. An eyewitness uh, who's seen the actual events. And so 
John is saying we testify to what we actually saw. We've seen everything that we're saying. It happened. But then he goes on to say, we testify to it and proclaim to you. Uh, now that sounds very similar, but they both are verbalized testimony to what has been seen and heard. But this word is slightly different in that it carries with it the authority, the authority to make such a declaration. As John Stott says in his commentary on 1 John, Jesus not only manifested himself to the disciples to qualify them as eyewitnesses, but he gave them an authoritative commission as apostles to go out and preach the, whole, the gospel to the whole world. And we see that happening uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven. They were not ready up until that point. They were confused. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them uh, at the day of Pentecost, we see them begin to spread out throughout the known world. And now here we are today because the apostles began to step out away, uh, apart from, separate from Jerusalem and go out into the world and proclaim the gospel with authority. And then finally we see that the way that they are eyewitnesses is that they, were, they wrote it down in their writing. And John says in verse 4, and he says it several times throughout uh, this, uh, this book, find that uh, we write these things so that your joy may be full, may be, full, may be complete. And so... Uh, the reason we have this book with us today is not because some publisher house put together some good stories for us to read. This is the eternal Word of God that has been present, pro, proclaimed throughout the years and has been handed down to us. It is still inerrant. It is still infallible. And so the, the apostles proclaimed that and wrote that down so that we uh, uh, have a, a record, an accurate account of everything that we need for eternal life. So this is the way that the, the, the gospel has come down through us through the ages. And then notice there he says, towards the end of that verse, where he says, uh, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal life, it literally in the Greek, is the life which is eternal. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's not just life in general, it's eternal life. Jesus Christ is the very epitome of eternal life. And when we come to know Him as, as our Savior and we place our faith in Him and we're placed into His body, we know eternal life. And that's the very definition of life where we get our definition of life from. You know, so often I think today as Americans, we think, well, our life's pretty good, right? It is. I mean, we have, we have freedoms, we have luxuries, we have niceties, we have all the things that we want in this life. And so often that's what defines us, is just the very things that we deal with from day to day. That's our life. But that is nothing in compared to eternal life. If all that went away today, we would still have this eternal life. And so because that, that eternal life is grounded in Jesus Christ and not in our circumstances and not in the things that we own. That's why, as I prayed earlier about the, the churches in, in the other parts of the world, th this idea is foreign to them. They don't have the, light, the, the niceties of life, but they have eternal life. And so that is what uh, probably they're, they're a lot more stronger of church than we, even we are here in America because they really understand the idea of what eternal life is, the, the essence of that, uh, the enormity of that. And John says, We proclaim the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Again, this, uh, this suggests that Christ, the eternal life, was continuously existing in a face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father before the Incarnation. There again in God, John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we see here that John pauses from his initial 
thoughts about the message of Christ, um, and, he, and he talks about the life of Christ himself in, in this parenthetical remark in verse 2, and then he moves into verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, it, was from the crea- it was for the creation of a fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ that John is proclaiming uh, this, that the, the truth of this message is true. The life of Christ is real. The message of Christ is real. Why? So that, so that we can proclaim and so that we can encourage and assure you and, 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 and bring about this fellowship and, and teach the truths of this fellowship uh, that we enjoy. This is a, a word that's common to us. We've, uh, it's, it, we know it as the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is a Greek word that occurs 20 times in the Bible. Its primary meaning is fellowship, participation, a sharing in common, a communion. Christian fellowship is a key aspect of the Christian life. Believers in Christ are to come together in love, faith, and encouragement as we share life. We are mutually committed. We are mutually accountable. We believe the same truths. We are committed to the same mission. We are in love with the same Lord. We are trusting the same God and we are proclaiming the same gospel. That's the essence of what koinonia means. See, so many often today we think, well, let's just get together and fellowship. What do you think that means? Well, obviously there's going to be food present, right? There's going to be food present or there's going to be a ball game going on, or we're just going to gather around and talk, and we're just going to enjoy life. And those things are not wrong, okay? I'm not saying they're wrong. But that's not the essence of Christian fellowship. That is foreign to the Bible. The essence of Christian fellowship is a deep unity, a deep sharing, a communion with, that is grounded in Christ. And, and that ha- that's not something that we just, choose to, we, just, we just all of a sudden one day choose to do, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we know that word called means the effectual calling that the Holy Spirit does when He draws people into Himself. And so, you were pulled into this fellowship. You were brought into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, And so, John is saying that we proclaim also to you that so that you too may have fellowship with us. So, notice when he says you may have fellowship with us, the stress is not having is not on having fellowship with one another, really. It's about really having fellowship with the apostles. We're identifying with the apostles. The only way that you can have fellowship in the church, this is key now, the only way that you can have fellowship in the church is to believe what the apostles have taught about Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And he's saying that when you embrace these things, you will have fellowship with us. You will be identifying with us, the apostles. When you believe what we have taught about Jesus Christ, then you will have fellowship with us and you are a part of the body of Christ, the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This proclamation creates an accountable fellowship, a church that expresses itself in commitment to the apostles' teaching. A very familiar verse in Acts chapter 2, and I would encourage you to hold your finger here and flip back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42.
Luke here is writing about uh, the uh, historical account of the early days of the church and what's going on as God, remember Peter had just proclaimed the word of God uh, to all the people who were in Jerusalem and, and some 3,000 people have been added to the church. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And so what's, what's going on after that happened? What subsequently happens to these people? <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word fellowship is the same Greek word, koinonia. And so John Stott, again commenting on this verse, says, This verse is a rebuke to much of our modern evangelism in church life. We cannot be content with an evangelism that does not lead to the drawing of converts into the church, nor with a church life whose principle of cohesion is a superficial social camaraderie instead of a spiritual fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You grasp the importance of what he's saying there. It's not just that we get together on, uh, periodically and, and we share space together. We are in close communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then that breathes out amongst the rest of us. That's how, that's how we have fellowship. So the goal of the proclamation was not merely that people would pray a prayer or make a decision or hang out together, but that they would be united in the local body of believers to become a part of the body of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would have true shared life with one another. Now notice also that he says uh, that this is uh, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this not only has a horizontal level to it, it has a vertical uh, element to it. Uh, so the nature of the fellowship that we brought into by proclamation of the gospel is both human and divine. There's a horizontal dimension as well as a vertical dimension. And he speaks of it as a Trinitarian fellowship. We have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with His Son. You see the distinction being made there. That's a very good verse to prove the Trinity right there. It is fellowship, participation, and shared life with the triune God. We partake of the life that He imparts. That's key. The life that we enjoy is, the, is partaking of the life that He imparts to us. You cannot have true fellowship on the horizontal level amongst ourselves unless we have true fellowship on the vertical level with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what are the ramifications of this for us here today? This idea of koinonia, fellowship. What it, four things I have. Koinonia, fellowship with one another, not based on fellowship with God, is not true Christian fellowship. You understand what I'm saying? It's, we can say we have fellowship with people all we want, but unless it is grounded in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it is not true Christian fellowship. And this has ramifications on our relationships. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship, koinonia, has light with darkness? And so you see what he's saying. How can we have fellowship with people who do not know Christ? He's not saying you ignore these people, you have nothing to do with these people, but you cannot have close communion with people who do not know Christ. We fancy that we're going to bring them up, but that is not the case. They drag us down. We are here only to proclaim the message of the gospel to these people, and that is it. And there is many different ways that we do that. 
And we, and we take the opportunity that wherever God gives us to, open, to rush through that door when he provides that opening. But the casual relationships that go on in our, in our time amongst Christians with non-Christians is deadly. It will destroy your devotion to Christ and it will ultimately destroy you. And so we have to keep that in mind that true fellowship with one another has to be based and grounded in true Christian fellowship with God the Father. Second, true fellowship, koinonia, is not just hanging out together. I said that earlier, but I'll say it again. Uh, we, softly, we often incorrectly see this as all, all that we need to do, hanging out together, having a meal together. Uh, that is a big part. That's a part of it, but that's just a, that's the result of it. Okay, That's not doing it. That's the result of having it. Again, I, I draw your attention back to Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching <coughs> and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a lot going on here. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's part of their fellowship. They're hearing the apostles proclaim the message of God to the people. They're breaking bread together. That's not just having meal together. That's also talking about having the Lord's table together because they were doing that from day to day. But also they're devoting themselves to the prayers. And so how many of our casual hanging out type times really fit this definition? Probably if we were honest, there would be very few of them. Now, that's not to say you can't have conversations amongst ourselves about the matters that we deal with in life, whether it be sports or the weather or our hobbies. Those things are fine. But, but, but watch yourself for a while and see how little we actually talk about Christ when we get into an informal setting. I think I'm, I'm actually shocked at myself many times that that's the way it is, that, I, that my, my speech is trivial. It has nothing to do with eternal perspectives. And so what John is say, telling us and then what this word is telling us is that we have to be very intentional when we're together. Make use of the time. We have a purpose here on earth. And so we have to uh, be devoting ourselves to these things more intently. <coughs> the third thing we see here, true fellowship is the core of Christian unity. The core of Christian unity, we see it again here. Um, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they go on it, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so you see a, a general sharing going on, a unity amongst these people. And where does that unity come from? It doesn't come from programs that bring people into the building together. It comes from general love that should could be bursting out of our hearts towards one another. That's where the unity of this fellowship is talking about. And so when we truly are experiencing this, uh, this, this koinonia fellowship, this unity that the apostles are talk, that Apostle John is talking about here, we will be bursting and overflowing with love for one another. Now what does that do for us? Well, it should help us resolve conflict among one another. It should destroy gossip. It should destroy slander. It should destroy all the things that sidetrack us from our purpose. And so whenever we are walking in fellowship with Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, we are, it is bursting out in love for others. And we're going to explore this topic of love quite a bit as we continue through this book. And so I, I guarantee you, you will be challenged as John uh, begins to make some very pointed statements about how we love one another, as, as I have been. And then finally we see here a ramification of this is that true koinonia of fellowship is the basis for laboring together in the gospel. <clears throat> Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so a powerful example of what koinonia should look like and could be found is in a, in a study of the, of the phrase of one another in the Bible as we see all these different one another's. Uh, we are to honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, serve one another in love, be kind and compassionate with one another, admonish one another. All these things are speaking about as we're laboring together in the gospel. <coughs> now, there's a, that's, that's a broad term when it says you're laboring in the gospel. There's a lot involved with that. But at the very least, it's, a, it's talking about our evangelistic outreach, our, our desire and our willingness to get out into the community and share the love that Christ has poured out into our hearts. That should, be, that should be what defines us. That's, when people see us, when they hear about Ephesus Church, yeah, that's the church that somebody goes there. They told me about the Savior that loves them, that saved them. That's where we have to work. That's where we have to, to labor hard together. And the very foundation of that comes from our fellowship, our koinonia that is grounded in Christ. And then finally, we see in verse 4, that the personal joy that comes from this is unquestionable. John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, the mutual accountability that comes from membership in the body of Christ, the mutual accountability that leads to shared life and fellowship brought into being by the gospel is a life of consummated joy. It is the life of joy. Notice the order here. Verse 1 talks about the message. Verse 3 talks about the fellowship. Verse 4 talks about joy. So what do we deduce from this? The gospel proclamation leads to true fellowship, which leads to true joy. Gospel proclamation, fellowship, joy. Those things are, are united together. True joy comes in shared life with Christians, rooted in the shared life of God. This is the life that is the life of joy David talks about in Psalm 16:11 when he says, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." Is that the proclamation of your heart? Is that how you see life? John is saying that fullness of joy is found in mutual fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who share life with the triune God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where our joy is rooted. That's where it comes from. If you are trusting in Him, fellowshipping with Him, and fellowshipping with His people, you are already a participant in the full life of joy in His presence, His fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 15. <clears throat> These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So you see what He's saying there? He's, he's telling this to the apostles on, in, in, the, uh, in the upper room. This is his last teaching time with the apostles on the night he was betrayed. And, he's say, and they, were, they, were, uh, they were afraid. They, they, they didn't know what was going on. They knew something was up. Something strange was about to have it, happen. But he's, he's calming them down by saying, my, that my joy, these things I've spoken to you, all the things that I've taught you, everything about me, that my joy, my joy, Christ's joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. How can that not be? If Christ's joy is in us, will it not be full? It will be overflowing. And so if it's not, 
We have to examine ourselves and see why is Christ's joy not, not ushering in a life of joy for me? If it's not happening that way, then there's not something wrong with the joy that Christ has because it is full. The very essence of it, the very definition of it is that it is full. And when it is in you and it has been given to you at salvation, then that should usher in a life of joy. And so we're going to talk about this as we go through this book because many of the, of the, uh, of the disciples or, or the members of this church, that John, of all the churches that John is dealing with in Asia Minor here, have lost their joy because of all the, the problems with these false teachers are having amongst them. They're doubting their salvation. Of course, there's not going to be joy. But their perspective has been lost. They have to be regrounded in the life of Christ. <laughs> Paul says <coughs> in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's a declaration. That's something that we need to be telling each other all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He reiterates it because it's so important. John, in, a, in his second letter, he says in verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And so, you see, these guys, they weren't just weirdos who were always trying to get people to be happy. They understood that the life that is in Christ, the Christian life, is, by definition, a life of joy. It has to be that way. It can be no other way. And so the effects of sin upon us detract from that. But we have the power to overcome that. We have the, 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 everything that we need to live a life of godliness. And so and John also says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are, my children are walking in the truth. And so, you see, whenever we are all walking in the truth, when we're living a life of obedience, that produces joy in everybody else. And then ultimately, what happens when we're all striving to walk a life of obedience? We're all overflowing it with joy, praising God for the life that Miss Debbie's living, for Gary, for, for uh, all of y'all. As we, look out into your li- as we look out at your lives and see you walking obedience then, we have, then all of each of us swells up in joy as we give praise to God, thanking Him for that. And then we're a dynamic church when that happens, are we not? We are a dynamic church when people look at us and see those people are weird. Their very lives are characterized by joy. Not happiness now, but joy. There's a difference. Happiness can be fleeting. It can be determined by our circumstances, Right? But joy is everlasting. We have been called into the fellowship of Christ. That joy flows out of the life of Christ. It's not determined by our circumstances. And so that's why James can say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What? What do you mean by that? Nobody likes to go through a trial, right? No, we don't. But we have the promises of God that tells us that trial is firmly in the decrees of our sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. He has a good and glorious purpose for it. And we can have joy in knowing that whatever the outcome is, we will bring praise to His mighty name, no matter what. And so that's where our joy comes from. And so in closing, (coughs) I have some questions to ask. (coughs) Since the message is true... 
the message of Christ, the gospel, is true, do you believe it? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven, took on human form, and died to pay the penalty for the sin by which we have offended a holy God. He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and is now exalted at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. Do you believe that? Is that the testimony? Is that the proclamation of your heart? If it is not, if you do not believe that yet, then my prayer and my my desire and my urging to you today is to flee to Christ. That is where the source of eternal life rests. We are all eternal beings. We will live for eternity somewhere. We will, live, we will either spend eternity in heaven with Christ or we will spend eternity in hell feeling the full wrath of God the Father poured out on our sin. And so my question to any of you today who, are, who do not know Christ as your Savior, that is what you have to look forward to. And it may come to you as soon as you walk out that door today. Are you ready for that? Are you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe the message of the gospel? Since the message is true, what are your priorities in life as a Christian? I'm speaking to you Christians now. What are your priorities? Are your goals, deeds, and thoughts centered on Christ and Him alone? Is He alone your passion? Or is it all these other things that we love as Americans? Is Christ our only passion? If we were picked up from, this, from where we stand today and set over in a desert island and there to live the rest of our life, would we still be able to sing and proclaim the praises to God? Is He our passion? Is He our life? If the person of Christ is real, do you trust Him? Is He the Lord of your life? You see, it's an oxymoron to say, No, Lord. You can't say those words together. Because either He's your Lord or He is not. If He's your Lord, you cannot say no to Him. And so, that's what we need to ask ourselves. We will be examining ourselves as we go forward. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? If the fellowship is genuine, do you live like it? Are you growing in godliness, love, and faithfulness? Are you in conflict with people all the time? Do you have trouble with forgiveness? Fellowship will breed all of that out. True fellowship, true unity in the gospel that proceeds out of the life of Christ will destroy all those things, will bring reconciliation of hearts. And then finally, is the person, if the personal joy is unquestionable, are you sharing your faith and are you really enjoying it? Are you in, do you enjoy your life? We are called to enjoy our life. It is not a sin to enjoy God. That is the very essence of the gospel itself, is that we must enjoy Him, or we are sinning against Him. We must enjoy Jesus Christ because He has... Look, look what He has done for us. He has saved us from our own sin. He saved us from the wrath of God. And so that cannot do anything but usher in a life of joy. And so you have to ask yourself, are you enjoying it? And are you sharing that joy with others? Are you proclaiming the gospel? Are you taking opportunities to do that? <laughs> so John's first assurance to us about the possession of eternal life is that it's true. The message is true. Christ is eternal life. Be encouraged. Be encouraged today. Christ is the eternal life. 
Christianity is both true and real. The message of Christ is true, and its effects are real and eternal. And we have them right now. Eternal life does not begin when we die. It began when you came to know Jesus, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and He saved you. That's when your eternal life began. Be encouraged. May God bless the preaching of His Word.